Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopist, I'm chatting to Chris Lintott of the University of Oxford and co-founder of the Zooniverse and co-host of The Sky at Night. And we talk about the public engagement in science. So I think there are sciences that are naturally going to be more in the public eye. And I think those fields have a responsibility to invest in uh, excellent engagement and, and outreach. How alien invasion can wreak havoc on your vintage. One of the rules, I think in Bordeaux, but it may be, it's actually Burgundy, is that if an alien spacecraft lands in your vineyard, then you cannot, for the next three years, call yourself proper uh, Burgundy wine. And why everyone should try real tennis. It's a brilliantly ridiculous game. There are, you get a point if you hit the unicorn, for example. And why it's not helpful to plan too far ahead. In my experience, at least, the, the path is much more random uh, and, much, and you're going to be much more buffeted by, by random events, jobs that open up, data that becomes available, things you find. And so it's almost not worth worrying about too many steps ahead. All in this episode of The Microscopist. Hi and welcome to this episode of The Microscopists and today I'm really fortunate to be joined by Chris Lintott from who is an Oxford astrophysicist. He's importantly for today actually uh, the creator of the Zooniverse and maybe I should look to my background first and done a background check but also presenter of Sky at Night so at this point I'm really really intimidated although Chris only just found that out. Chris how are you today? Well, I'm sorry I'm intimidating, but otherwise otherwise I'm fine. Uh, it's lovely to be here and I'm looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, no, no, I I, I know you through others and no, I'm not really that intimidated. I know, I know you're a person too, Good. But, and everything else. So I know when I invited you to talk on the microscopist, your question was, well, I'm not a microscopist, but I think you have had profound impacts on the life science and the microscopy world. And so actually, I thought it'd be great to get to know you, your initiatives, uh, and really hopefully inspire other people uh, to work with you and to help some of the projects that you're involved in. But do you know what, let's, let's start with the astrophysicist part. What inspired you to start with to become an astronomer rather than a life scientist? Um, well, I'm usually, I w I'm an astronomer who grew up looking at the stars. So most of my colleagues are sort of escaped physicists or mathematicians who find the problems interesting. I grew up as, as a kid in, in Devon, uh, looking up at the night sky and asking questions uh, about what I was seeing. And the thing that inspired me then was the idea that we could tie observations, like the fact that some of the stars were different colours, to the physics, to the understanding of the cosmos. So, so that was the idea that inspired me. And really, I've been lucky enough to, to keep asking those questions and trying to understand the universe. The other great secret, of course, um, as this is primarily talking to people who are interested in life sciences, is that physics is much easier. And astronomy is much easier than trying to understand something as complex as a cell. Uh, let alone an organism. So I quite like, I'm quite lazy and I like nice, simple problems. <laughs> uh, and if you're trying to describe the universe as a whole, you have to do it at a level 
that is nice and nice and simple. So so maybe I've just started with the easy stuff and we'll we'll work out from there. I think if you could explain the Big Bang and where those two particles came from to start with, I, I see that that is mind-blowingly difficult and complex. So I think oh, well, we don't understand we don't understand that bit. So that's fine. I can do everything after that. So I, I often tell people because I'm an observational astronomer. So so I get my hands on data, I like playing with telescopes. Um, I like thinking of new ways to, to look at the universe. So my um, domain starts probably a few minutes and more likely about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. The theorists and their chalkboards can have the first few minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's, you're, you're focused on the long game. They're focused on, a, on, right. on, yeah, yeah. on this very, very, very momentary yes, event, I guess. Right. Uh, Chris, so you're into star, to astrophysicist aspect to it uh, and star formations I, I, if you don't mind how old were you when you became professor at Oxford uh, uh let's see I was 33 um which is pretty early but I got lucky and and think things fell in, fell into place uh a, a, a bit and you know um it's a great privilege it, it's it, it's wonderful to to have got there but the, for me the important bit was just to keep getting to do what I'm doing. I always assumed that at some point I'd run out of road and stop being an astronomer. I'd have to go and I don't know, find something else to do. So so for me, like the great privilege, never mind the title, is to to be here and to be able to to work on slightly crazier projects, unusual things with great people. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's an, an amazing thing. So you don't, so have you ever found it I don't know. Have people ever looked at you with envy or just at 33, such a young age to be a professor? Mind-blowingly young. Has that been a good thing or a bad thing or a mixed bag? You know, the, I'm not sure that being a professor made much difference. I got my own pigeonhole, so that was nice. Um, and I think my, uh, you know, my parents finally understood what it was that I did because they recognised the title. But but apart from that, no, I think. You know, in, in academia, I think it, it really is those of us lucky enough to have a permanent or semi-permanent job versus everyone else. So that that was that that was a big moment a few years earlier. Um, I've never really I haven't really thought about the, the age piece. It's not something that I keep keep track of, really. So it didn't feel young to me. Uh, but then I don't I'm not I'm not sure how I'm not really answering your question because it, it's never really occurred to me. So I'm just you're complex. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'll worry about it. But in envy, I'm not sure. I mean, I think being at Oxford is weird because I love this place. It's got great things going for it. But in the world, particularly in the US, you say Oxford and it has all sorts of connotations. And obviously in this country, you say Oxford and there's a certain sort of brighthead revisited type stereotype of, of people punting down the Thames and opening champagne bottles. And we only do that three or four times a week. Um, so, so, so I think so. Being at Oxford adds this extra dimension to it that that's a bit strange. And um, big, it's interesting. Being an astrophysicist is a thing as well. So the joke is that, except that it's true, is that if you're talking, let's say you're talking to somebody on a plane or something, you want to have a conversation with them. You say you're an astronomer. Everyone has questions uh, for astronomers. Whether that's you know, have you seen, have you seen aliens? Do you know Brian Cox? You know, these big fundamental questions. Um, or if you don't want to talk to the person sitting next to you, you say you're a physicist and then that's it, it's done. Um, and so astrophysics is the thing, but I was an astrochemist originally. So my PhD 
uh, was on um, the chemistry of star formation. So it, it comes back to trying to understand the universe through observing it. You need as much information as possible. And so if you think about chemistry as well as physics, you think about composition of the molecules that are formed, we could get much more information uh, about the processes of star formation. So I, I call myself an astronomer first and foremost, because that's about looking at the sky. I do astrophysics and, and there's a bit of astrochemistry. These days there are astrobiologists knocking around. Uh, and I know at least one person who thinks they're an astrosociologist. Uh, which is trying to explain uh, the likely structures of alien civilizations. Um, so, so, you know, I guess we've reached the life sciences after all. Well, I'd actually, surprisingly, astrochemists, uh, so actually probably worth listening to Scott Fraser's, uh, the microscopist with Scott Fraser. Uh, <clears throat> he was a physicist, stroke chemist, stroke biochemist, so he's kind of dipped into all sorts. But one of the big things in light microscopy some 20 years or so ago was unmixing colours, fluorescent colours, to enable us to look at more colours that were coming out of our fluorescent images. And actually that was inspired through the deconvolution, the algorithms coming out of astronomy and astrophysics, that are mixing the colours you are seeing down to the components and using that uh, uh, single component analysis, deconstructing them into the different colours. Yeah, which is something we, we're used to doing. I think astronomy is an interesting field and, and it has these links to other fields because I think we were very early to adopt digital detectors. So the sky surveys in sort of the early 90s had switched to electronic cameras for, from, from film. And so that, I think we had a lot of exposure to those techniques early on. Um, but also because astronomy data is basically useless. Uh, it has no commercial value whatsoever. Uh, and so we tend to be a field that ha is very open with our data and our algorithms and our processes. So I think that leads people to collaborate with, with all sorts of people that, that I could look around the country. My colleague, Brooke Simmons, who we might talk about her work in, in a bit, but she does disaster relief projects on the side, analyzing satellite images to, to help first responders. Sarah Bridal in Manchester, who I did work experience with back in, back in the day, uh, now leads a big program on food security using the skills that she uh, acquired as a cosmologist, as, a, as an astrophysicist. So I, I think there's something about the fact that we're used to, to working collaboratively with large data sets and often imaging data that, that means that we're, we're a field that tends to pass on techniques to, to other places. Plus, we're, I think as a, as a, as a group, um, as, as will be obvious from this interview, astronomers, I think we're pretty distractible. Um, and so we can be seduced by new problems in, in other fields. And I, I think that happens to lots of us. Well, I think, so I mentioned the spectral and mixing part, Scott, but actually you then went back to the digital cameras. And actually it was back in the nineties, I started using my first CCD camera. Uh, from Wright Instruments, which I think was Oxford-based at the time, and we liquid nitrogen chilled CCD, uh, tiny right. 512, 512 pixel, I think it was. Yet again, uh, I, I was conscious that they came, that came from the astronomy side and into life sciences. So actually, it's a really good advert for physics and the funding of physics and astronomy. Uh, some people may argue that what's the point of understanding the stars when there's more fundamental things back on earth to, to solve? And yet it's those CCD cameras, it's the algorithms, the things you just highlighted, it's the impacts that, that they then benefit. 
So it's far greater. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, that, that, that general argument for blue skies research is a good one. I think we have a very bad track record of predicting what will be useful in 30, 40 years. And astronomy in various ways claim to Wi-Fi uses algorithms that were developed by Australian radio astronomers. Um, and as you say, CCD, CCDs uh, and, and all the rest of it. Um, but I think it's also... Um, I, th I think we can be actually, and we share this with some of the the imaging life sciences as well. I think there are sciences that can be a sort of gateway drug for the public understanding of science as well, or or for for education. So so one reason to have astronomers around is is what I mentioned a minute ago, which is that people have questions for us. That people can be drawn into talking about science much more easily in astronomy than I don't know if you're. Um, condensed matter physicist and, and, and you know some of my best friends are condensed matter physicists there's nothing wrong with being a condensed matter physicist but it is harder to get a conversation going in the pub about your latest research than you know when we found some new planets or or uh, discovered uh, taken a beautiful image of colliding galaxies so i think there are sciences that are naturally going to be more in the public eye and i think those fields have a responsibility to invest in uh excellent engagement and and outreach so that people could be drawn into science as a career or as a hobby or as part of their lives um and and so i think there's also that that pitch to it as well so i guess that ties nicely onto the 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 importance of communication of science and as you said you know as a child you look up you can see the night sky you can be curious to know what's going on what creates it how things are moving it, it's you know completely different and communication is really important and so i i, I I say I should have done my background reading. So you are now co-presenter of Sky at Night, which for those yes. who are not in the UK is the astronomy programme that you tune into. And I think almost all children, certainly in my age, would have watched Sky at Night uh, through through the ages. And, and it's serious and not serious, but, but there is quite heavy content in there at times. But it does, it was always engaging. Yeah, I think that's what we're aiming for. So Scott, it has various distinctions, but the, the program started in 1957, which is before uh, the space space venture. It started a few months before Sputnik went up, uh, the first satellite. Um, and it's every month, which is odd. It used to be every lunar month, which was because it was felt that people who are interested in astronomy in the 50s would want to look at the, the moon. So if you put on a program at the new moon, when the moon is invisible in the sky, people would come in and watch. And, and it turns out we have a broad audience of that. The BBC lost track of the lunar months in sometime in the 90s and it shifted to calendar months. And, and now we take a little break as well. Um, but I think the other distinguishing feature about the Skirt Night is that um, it's made more or less on a shoestring budget, which means we kind of get left alone to do, do what we like. And so, so we get to produce a very unusual programme, I think. Uh, what we try and do is make sure that everyone learns something from every episode, which means that if we're making, I don't know, uh, we made an episode two months ago um, about a European Space Agency satellite called Gaia, which is mapping the nearest billion stars to us. And um, I think we probably started, we started the program by saying that the Milky Way is a galaxy, that it contains 100 billion stars. And some of the people watching will have learned that and be blown away by the idea that there are 100 billion stars in the galaxy. Well, plus or minus a few hundred billion. There are hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy. We're not really sure we haven't finished counting. Um, but we also talked about the fact that the exciting result, if you're deep in the field, is that 
um, some of the stars in the galaxy trace a merger between our galaxy and um, uh, a previous uh, a smaller system that happened 10 billion years ago that was the most significant event in the history of our galaxy that no one uh, had suspected had happened. So to try and do both of those things in a program is quite odd, um, but I think it works and, and we, we, we're managing to keep, keep going with a, a very loyal audience of people who tune in to, to, to listen to, to whatever we have to say. What are the viewing figures like now for it? Uh, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say because oh, okay. I'm, I'm not really a proper BBC, but hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Um, what I do know is that we, I was once told we were the cheapest programme per viewer on British television, uh, which I, I think you can, you could draw one of two conclusions from. And you've done well because you obviously picked up the mantle. Uh, your, your co-host picked up the mantle from Patrick Moore, I think it was, wasn't it? Who was that's right who presented it from 1957 till yeah. 2012 although I, I overlapped with it we worked together for, for the last 10 or so of those years how was that, well, Pat, how was that Patrick, yeah well he was exactly as he was off screen uh, as he was on screen so I guess if you have an international Patrick it was the embodiment of sort of what you draw as an English eccentric uh, a man of many obsessions and passions and strong opinions um, but who loved conversation uh, and and uh, more than anything else. So his favourite thing would be to have a room full of people, preferably people who are interested in astronomy, uh, which and and to sit up late at night talking. So for for a few of the years towards the end of his time on the program, we made the program at his house, and it was like going to summer camp for astronomers. Uh, and we'd have you know world renowned scientists, people who'd built missions that had gone to Mars, would come down, stay, and uh, the producer would spend half of her time trying to get people to go to bed early instead of sitting up and talking because we had to film the next day. Uh, it was just, it was, it was just great fun. And he was an incredibly, uh, if he liked you, he was an incredibly generous man. So um, when he became less able to travel, this is how I got in, into the program was that I, I was a researcher. I was supposed to be behind the scenes, you know, um, helping the, the production team make sense of the, the complex stories that we were telling. But um, he, uh, but, but Patrick immediately said, well, you know, we should go to this conference, we should cover it, I can't go, Chris could do it. And so I started doing little bits and pieces like that and got thrown in front of the camera, which meant that I got to be bad on television and no one gets to be bad on television anymore. You have to be good the first time and you're either a star or you're nothing. Whereas I had this apprenticeship essentially, uh, where gradually I sort of worked out, I think, uh, you know, how to interview somebody, um, how, how to make sure I didn't, I, I'd actually bothered to iron my shirt before going on. Uh, yeah, how to, how to, no, you're good, you're good. There's just some archive <laughs> footage that I saw recently that's not, not great. Yeah, historic <laughs> moments like the European Space Agency's Huygens landing on Titan. That footage will be watched in a hundred years time and all they'll wonder is why on earth I didn't know how to iron the shirt. <laughs> uh, but, but the point is I learned presenting as a craft um, and and I think people ask me how to get a career in science television. And the truth is, I don't know. I was really lucky and stumbled into it via Patrick, who had the generosity to say that the programme and the stories that we wanted to tell were the most important thing. Now, you mentioned late nights. So I'm just going to move the conversation on a bit. So what, what are your favourite drinks if you're having a late <laughs> night? Um, Oh, it depends on mood. I, I, so so um, I'm often found with a glass of red wine, to be honest. I think red wine, but I, 
That's just, so I've got a bag for, for those who are listening. What is this background of, Chris? So this is the label of one of my favorite wines. So this is a, a wine called Le Cigar Volant from California. And I think this is a really good example of astronomy being in the culture in a way that we talked about. So this is um, uh, a Californian wine that's made in the style of French wine. So there's a bunch of Californians who 30 years ago started to make uh, wine like you make in the south of France. And it, it, Le Cigar Volant is obviously a flying saucer. And you can see there's a saucer there beaming down onto the vineyard. Um, and the reason it's there is that French wine has a long strict list of rules that you have to if you want to make wine in a particular place in France you have to really follow the rules and, and they tell you what grapes you can use but also maybe when to harvest how you can treat the grapes afterwards and so on one of the rules I think in Bordeaux but it may be it's actually Burgundy is that if an alien spacecraft lands in your vineyard then you cannot for the next three years call yourself proper uh burgundy wine you have to declassify you can only sell as one so le cigar volant claimed to be the only place in the world that actually guarantees this so they pay an astronomer in wine um to certify that no aliens have intervened with their website now that's not me but if they're listening i will happily take that job on uh, but i also think it, it's a really good example of how um you know as, astronomy sort of infuses uh, people's lives and in all sorts of strange places. So, so, so I like the fact that my subject crops up all over the place, and I, I do, I do, I do like a decent glass of red wine. I, I, I've never had a glass of it. Is it good? It's excellent. Yeah, oh, it's actually really good value you, really. as well. I highly recommend it. Um, so, but you I need to open the bottle about an hour before and just let it decant yeah. first. Yeah, actually, our local field and Fawcett, they they sell it, but they haven't got it in stock at the moment. I did look. When you, when okay, you, nice try. Yeah, it's a bit. I, I don't know if we were doing this on a Friday morning. It's a bit early for for a bottle of bottle wine. Uh, but but yeah, I did notice when we started doing in the pandemic, when we started doing things from home, I filmed uh, from this study for Sky at Night, filming myself on a, a little camera, which is pretty stressful. But you suddenly became hyper aware of what's behind you, and I've got a couple of couple of um, wine boxes. Uh, that are nice. The sort of wooden crates from various things that I they they actually got books in now. Uh, but people started noticing them and commenting that I was clearly, you know, again, Oxford professor, nice wine. There's a certain certain image. And then people were, were putting out, I've got trashy sci-fi and, underneath. And so <laughs> it was quite fun watching people try to put these different bits together uh, and try and try and come up with, with a person. Um, so the Oxford professor wine bit works, but then cricket and sci-fi and, and, and various other bits uh, knocking around confused people. Uh, see, 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 my background is literally as the office was and, and the wall, the picture wall is actually because I don't like, I'm useless at putting up pictures. So actually for my wife's birthday, I think it was, I put up a big board <clears throat> that we can nice. just easily put pictures on and have lots of pictures in one place and leave the rest of it a little less cluttered. So nice, very good. And just moved yeah, into that, No, I just have books everywhere, which is a problem that is increasing during during lockdown. So, so yeah, at some point more shelves are needed. But, Okay. Le Cigar Volant is also, a bit of background, a restaurant in Fraser. Is it? it is. I didn't know that. There you go. I have, a fr I have a friend who's a big Fraser fan who'll be very disappointed that I didn't know that. Uh, but, well, there you go. See, yeah. it, it, this idea, probably linked to the wine. This, this, these <laughs> ideas um, spread out and, 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 and escape. Yeah, they're, they're, I think Nella known that backstory and just love the backstory to it. It just adds the depth and complexity to it as well. So you mentioned the sci-fi books. So what? So any particular sci-fi favourites? Um, 
I have all sorts of things that I read. I've been reading a lot of sort of, it's really interesting and go back and, and read sci-fi from the 50s and, and 60s and, and to, to, to sort of look at what, what at the time was trying to imagine technologies. Um, so, but I, I, I think the best book I know, which everyone should read is um, a, a book called Starmaker by uh, uh, an author called Olaf Stapledon, who was an Oxford philosopher in the 1930s. And he wrote, they're very strange books. They're, they're sort of about a cosmos that's shaped by thought, by, by people's uh, imaginations, really. And, and there's, a, there's a sort of grandeur of imagination to it um, that, that he make, makes impossible. So it's not really that they're not, his, his books are not about starships and space operas and battles and Klingons and all the rest of it. They're about ideas and thinking about the cosmos. So um, Star Maker is just brilliant and, and everyone should read it. He, my favorite of his is a book called Last and First Men, which is a history of the next, I think, six billion years. Uh, and he has this idea that um, intelligence evolves and inevitably destroys itself. And then there's a long period before intelligence rises and fades again. And each time the story is different. So, so he goes through, so for example, um, in one possible scenario, um, in the intelligent beings create supercomputers to think for them and then the computers take over uh, before the computers decide that actually they need creativity. And so they, they switch themselves off and wait for the next evolution. In another chapter, um, people learn to fly and develop wings and then flying is so much fun they decide to do nothing else and thus go extinct uh, and so on so so last and first place but again it's about imagine sitting down to write a book about the next six billion years uh there's a sort of mind-stretching intelligence to that 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 i think is really good um and everyone i, I recommend last first men but the first hundred pages is a marxist analysis of mid-20th century politics because we end up killing ourselves in a nuclear war so i'd skip the first hundred pages unless you're particularly into 1930s marxism um and then read the rest so politics evolution sociology flying <laughs> all put into one it's where we started today isn't it? everything's in there it's quite quite something that's uh, okay you, you mentioned klingons and everything else Star Wars or Star Trek? What's your favourite? Trek, definitely. I grew up. I grew up watching Star Trek, both the the Next Generation and the original series. So, um, although I have to say, I'm not. I I went back and rewatched a lot of the the Next Generation, and I'm not sure it stood up very well. Apart from the fact that I think Patrick Stewart is an amazing, amazing actor, and I'd watch him in in anything. But definitely Trek. Um, and um, the more astrophysical, the, the worse, really. Um, so I like it when they, they don't try and explain the science. So there's, there's a great Star Trek anecdote, which is somebody wrote and asked Gene Roddenberry, who founded it, uh, exactly how the Heisenberg compensators in the uh, teleporters were. And that's, so if you're going to teleport, you have a problem with quantum physics because you need to know the precise position of every atom if you're going to put transport somebody and have them turn up the same as they started. So they, the show knew this, invented things called the Heisenberg compensator that fixed this problem. Somebody wrote to Gene Roddenberry and said, how do they work? And he said, very well. <laughs> and I, 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 that's my kind of sci-fi. Don't give me a pseudo scientific explanation that's wrong. Just tell me there's a magic box that does a thing and then we can get on with the story. That, um, that's a bit like the Big Bang then, isn't it? It happened. Don't worry about how that happened. Oh, well, no, no. Yeah, I think so. I'd love to know how the Big Bang happened. I just don't know how to, you know, I've, I, I put that in the too, too difficult 
box right now. But I guess, you know, if we're, if we're talking microscopy uh, amongst other things, like you must get, there's all sorts of, of, of movies and sci-fi that, that depend on the view of the very small, you know, Jurassic Park or, or whatever. You must get distracted when that's not right, right? Do you, do you get implausible uses of microscopes in... I think the biggest one is forensic things on different programs and stuff. And I think almost every microscopy spare bug will be when they look down a light microscope and they show an electron microscope image. Oh, yeah. I hadn't but, even occurred to, occurred to it's, me that. It's completely unfeasible. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> right. Because I, I thought you were going to say there's always the thing in those dramas where they say enhance and the picture gets better. Instead of applying for a grant for a more kit, waiting six years, months, <laughs> getting it installed. Yeah, um, like software is really that good yet. Although software should be able to help us get there and enhance it as well as it does. If you've got, still don't understand why we can't get better CCTV of actual criminals. Just merge the images. Just decomposed. Good grief! Right. If we can reconstruct the structure of proteins, surely we construct reconstruct someone's face off a load of blurry images. <laughs> I don't know that you probably can now. That's a, I mean, this is the machine. I mean, that, that's a serious machine learning challenge. And I, I suspect people are disturbingly good at face recognition now. Um, but it's about where we deploy that. But, but now we're back into politics again. So maybe well, well, we should actually, retreat to sci fi. You also mentioned machine learning, and that I think brings us nicely onto citizen science uh, mm. and uh, Zooniverse, which is, I can't, yeah, your career is just unbelievably impactful if that's a word, uh, from the start. And, and this is really you know, how I got to know about you and, you know, just how I found you inspirational and what you did and how you were helping Martin Jones and Lucy Collinson down at Cricken. I think Lucy even mentions uh, Etchersel uh, as part of Zooniverse. Uh, so actually, if I go from the Zooniverse, I can find the Etchersel. Oh, gosh, I've sure got no... I'll, yeah, I'm, going, I'm getting older. <laughs> Lack of hair. This is so I, I collaborate quite closely with Lucy and a fundamental problem in life sciences is we can get great images. Making sense of them is really difficult. Getting software to draw lines around objects that we can easily see is really complex because there's other lines that obviously don't relate to it, but software thinks it does. <clears throat> and it's citizen science. It's, it's Zooniverse specifically that is enabling them to take giant strides in this. Uh, so, so I, I don't know how I don't know how well you know HSL. No, pretty well. So the, the story the, the story of Zooniverse in a nutshell is that we had too many galaxies, um, or at least we had images of a million galaxies that we needed to sort out. And um, this was two thousand and seven, something like that. I just arrived as a postdoc in Oxford, and um, yeah, we we'd shown that it mattered to have people look at them. That at the time, at least for that task, people outperformed machine learning. Um, and so taking inspiration from a few other projects that have run elsewhere, we put those images online and asked people to help, thinking it would be a nice small project. Um, my idea was that I go and talk to local astronomical societies, clubs of amateur astronomers around the country. I thought, OK, talk to 50 people a month. If they go and do 50 galaxies each, we can sort of have this nice side project. Um, the web doesn't work like that. You either succeed slowly or beyond your wildest dreams. And we were getting 70,000 classifications an hour, 24 hours after launching. Um, 70,000? 70,000 classifications an hour were coming in a day after we launched. And that was the peak, but we, we kept going. We, we'd quickly run through the images. And 
the data was really good because we had lots of people look at each image. So the part of the power of this approach is not only that human pattern recognition is very good. So these are, are naturally tasks that people, anyone can do. Um, but the, because we have lots of people do each task, you get a sense of accuracy as well. Almost immediately after Galaxy Zoo, we started to get uh, hear from other researchers who wanted to know if our crowd of volunteers could do other tasks. And I've already mentioned that astronomers are, are pretty distractible. Uh, and so for that reason, but also because we were sort of fascinated to try and understand um, why Galaxy Zoo had worked. And as an observational scientist, I thought, well, we need more data. So we started to build other <laughs> projects it, to, to try and explore what works in this form of citizen science. So we built uh, projects where we thought the images were really dull. Uh, we built projects where the task was harder. We built projects in completely different fields and started to build up what became the Zooniverse. Um, and so after, after a while of sort of just responding to people who wanted to, to build projects with us, um, we started to think about where that systematically about where there was a need for people to look through images. And at that point you hit your world pretty quickly. Um, so we were lucky enough to get some funding. We hired uh, Helen Spears, who's the real driving force behind Etchacell, who worked with me here in Oxford and um, is now with Lucy and Martin at, at the Crick Institute. Um, and, and we built this, this project and I, I, I don't know the technical details, but it's been fascinating to watch um, our volunteers engage with what's quite, as you say, quite a difficult task, I think. We're not just saying it's a spiral galaxy or it's an elliptical galaxy. We're not just saying there are 17 penguins in this image, which is our most popular project is counting penguins. But you'll say, okay, please draw around the cell nucleus um, or, or, or one of the other uh, constituents of the cell. But I think the data itself is fascinating. It comes as I'm not going to try and use use terms, but where you, where you're slicing through the cell and you're getting a three dimensional picture of uh, the nucleus out of the tracings that are provided by the Etcher cell audience. Um, yeah, I did lasted biology in school. Um, I thought that a the cell nucleus was a nice round, probably spherical blob, right? Because that's what all the textbooks have, and it still blows my mind that that's not true. And that from Etchacell, we've got this nice three-dimensional model that shows structure uh, within there. And I think it's grist to my biology is complicated mill because it turns out not everything is a sphere. Um, and, and, and it's been a really interesting um, project, partly because of that difficulty, we've had to get machines involved as well. So in the 14 years that we've been running Zooniverse, obviously machine learning driven by Google and Facebook and all the rest has, has improved beyond measure. And so one of the things I'm interested in now is how we best combine human and machine systems. So I begin to sound like a science fiction author at this point, but, but that sort of hybrid capacity where you can um, ask machines to do the things they're good at, but retain the human capacity for dealing with edge cases, complex problems, uh, making discoveries. Uh, uh, and so on. I, that combination uh, work, works really, really well. Um, and Etchacell is a place where we're on the cutting edge there because um, having got people to draw around the cell nucleus on each, each of the image, um, we can then train a machine to produce a consensus map to take everyone's efforts and produce the final answer. 
Um, and, and it's inspiring, actually it's coming full circle and some of the astronomy projects I'm working on are now taking in its inspiration from that Etch-a-Cell approach, uh, which the team at Crick are continuing to develop. So just expanding further on that future for machine, machine learning, is taking, so the critical thing here is not one person takes, draws around one nucleus, someone else draws around another nucleus, lots of people draw around the same nucleus, so it removes that human error. It removes right. the biases, mistakes. It gives you better confidence in there. And I think Mar I think Lucy and Martin both said that there was they were gobsmacked at just how good amateurs, you know, armchair scientists, were at drawing round these objects. Yeah. Such such a skill to do it, but actually collectively, that there are some great people out there that are spending their time and doing it really, really well. Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple of things. Just sorry, just to just to say on that because I think sorry to interrupt, but I, I think it's really important that <clears throat> they're doing it really well because they care. Um, and so one of the the things we got wrong in the when we were setting up that first project was to think that people would be motivated by a pre-existing love of astronomy or um, a desire to discover a galaxy. And actually, every time we study the or, or we run surveys uh, of Zooniverse volunteers. People take part because they want to help um, and they care that the data is being used for scientific purposes. And so <clears throat> taking those motivations, if you want to help and you know that somebody is going to use the data for something real, then you take a lot of time and care and attention. Um, then, of course, we combine people. So that does remove error. It gets rid of the very occasional uh, bad actor. I think we we must have had a school project because one of my favourite Etchcell examples is somebody just wrote "I hate yeah. this project," uh, <laughs> which is lovely. Um, but so you get rid of those. You also get rid of mistakes, but you also get some sense of the inherent fuzziness of the data. So there could be ten of us. We could all do the same task, and if we disagree slightly, that tells us something. Maybe the images are clear, or maybe there's there's some ambiguity there. So you actually get all of that information back as well. I think. You need that ground. So to, to beyond that, getting so many data sets will hopefully help machine learning. So that gives you the ground truth data. So, so if you just do a computer at it to draw it, it, it can't. It, it needs to be informed first. Right. And you need lots and lots and lots and lots of data for it to learn from. And that's where citizen science and Zooniverse really play and will, I hope, will play, certainly microscopy as well, cell tracking. Uh, just act, even like microscopy and, and following cells is incredibly challenging. And you talk to a lot of computer scientists and think, oh, this will be quite trivial and easy. They talk to some of the world's best computer scientists. And it's only once they see the data, they realize because cells are changing size, shape, that actually the characteristics when they go over the top of each other and come out the other side, apart from each other, they look different. And it's, the human eye can work out which one was which, but actually computers still really struggle. And I think, come on, everyone out there, if you're a light microscopist, live cell, try and find some energy to get this sorted. Yeah, so and, we, and, we, and we tried to make it easy. So, so we spent some time building projects for people, which was great fun. And then we found probably five years ago now, maybe a little more, that we were building more or less the same kind of project again and again and again. So we built a tool. So if you, people out there have data that would benefit from this sort of crowdsourced citizen science approach, um, you can go to zooniverse.org slash lab uh, and there is a tool there. It takes about an hour and you can build a project using your own data and then put we, you submit it to us, we review it and then put it out for our crowd. So 
research groups who have data but don't have any web expertise and, and don't want to develop any can, can build projects. It's, it, it's rather like creating a blog or something um, where you click some buttons and, and the project appears. Um, I think you're right about the complexity of the data that that helps. And I, I, I think there's a and you're right that modern machine learning, particularly deep learning, which is what dominates most of the headlines, um, depends on the size and quality of training sets. So, so, so yeah, so one way to view um, a citizen science project like this is that it can produce large training sets that you can then train fairly standard machine learning uh, with. So, for example, uh, we have a project called Snapshot Serengeti, which has motion-sensitive cameras in, in the Serengeti National Park. I've now got a pretty good trained giraffe detector uh, because we labeled 100,000 images of giraffes. So you can feed that into a network and now we can find giraffes. Plus, they're quite easy. They're kind of distinctive. Um, ostriches are much harder, incidentally. Um, so, so, so there's that one way thing. But I think the more interesting question is to say, to, to so, so in that picture, there's a sort of idea that at some point, you take the training wheels off, the machine is fine, and then you just feed your data in and, and, and your results come out the other end. And I think that's possible. We've had some projects that have achieved that, but, but for the kind of complex data where you really want to get every bit and byte of information out that you possibly can, I think that's, that's a very ambitious goal. As you say, I think all machine learning projects are 80% easy and 20% impossible. Uh, and I think a lot of the projects I see from, from your world live in that sort of 20% impossible. So I think a more interesting question for now. is to ex for now. Sorry. Yeah. For now. It's impossible well, for now. The future. Yeah, yeah. But, but the thing is, data sets keep growing too. So, so, so there's this race. So you can say, okay, so I can label currently, let's say 90% of my data with machines, and I need people to look at the other 10%. So in five years' time, maybe I can label 95% of the data machines. But the trouble is your data sets trebled in size or quadrupled in size or, or, or whatever as well. So I think the thing to do is to accept that we're always going to need some sort of review uh, and ask how we can make best use of that. So, for example, on the Galaxy Zoo project where we started, if you go to the site now, we have an advanced neural network built by my just-graduated PhD student, Mike Wormsley, that's running in the background and analyzing the galaxies. And the site will show you not just the things that the machine is most confused by, but the things which the machine that Mike built predicts which galaxies will improve it further. So it will show you the galaxies where you labeling it will most improve the machine performance on the rest of the galaxies. And so you have this nice loop that will always involve a machine and always involve people that, that's running quite happily. I'm also very interested in, I'm sort of on 10 hooks, I'm waiting for, for a grant uh that i hope i'll get that i've written uh, which is about the idea of serendipitous discovery um so i think another place where you need people is to be surprised so it's very hard to teach a machine to be surprised in the right way machines can tell you what's unusual but they can't tell you which of the unusual things are interesting uh um, going to comment I, I i just on that and you said you can get 80 percent, 20 percent, and 95 percent. but actually what a machine can't do is find out still can't find out yet the interesting cells that we don't know are interesting because right. they're out, I, I, outliers things that we, we tend to we, we bias what we're looking for and concentrate and ignore quite a lot of information around it right I, I think that's right and i think anomaly detection is a big field in machine learning so outlier detection because those are often the problematic things um but most anomalies in most this talking at a very high level but for most scientific data sets most anomalies are boring 
there in astronomy, there are places where a satellite went in front of the field of view, or there's a bright star that's a glare. In microscopy, I'm guessing it's a misaligned cell, or you know, the, the plate didn't work, or, 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 or whatever. Um, what we need, I think, from citizen scientists is to be able to identify which of the unusual things are interesting. And I think this will be a, a big move. I was, I was uh, delighted to work with, I worked with um, a team at the Diamond Light Source on a separate set of um, life science projects called uh, Science Scribbler. Um, and we've been talking about doing some, some stuff with cryo electron microscopy, where you're looking at protein <coughs> structures. And I was fascinated to learn that while people have, have, have managed to use templates to produce training data to find some of the most common proteins, in the cells that they're looking at, most proteins are rare most of the time. And so almost everything in that data set is an anomaly or is an outlier. And so this approach of let's just get 100,000 examples of everything and then train the machine isn't going to work there. Uh, and we're going to need to be much more, much smarter uh, about how we sort through that data. So, so I'm hoping to be able to get, get, in, get deep into that project in the near future. So with Richard Specs, Richard Henderson talked about very similar things uh, only recently. Just to give people an idea, because it's all good and well, all these data sets, and you know, it needs lots of data, it needs lots to be processed, and surely people are competing. But as we've heard, you've got people interested in astronomy and are passionate about it. There's people from Lucy's side that will be interested in cancer and helping cancer research, which is very much HSL's side of things. How, do you know how many registered volunteers you currently have across? The, and this is international. This is not just a UK thing. This is but, very international. That's right. And we, we're actually trying to do more translations so that we can be more international. We've got a couple of million registered volunteers. And to give you an idea of the scale, during 2020, they contributed over 100 million annotations to across all the projects. Now, over so, million people. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is that they're motivated by helping. So yes, some science is more, as we discussed at the start, some science is more immediately accessible. It does help if your project has penguins in it. People do like penguins. Um, but apart from that, um, what really seems to captivate people, what makes a successful project is engagement by the scientists. So if you, they, if you can explain why you want people to do something and you're there to answer questions every so often when they are doing it, then, you, then we do see projects developing uh, a loyal following from amongst the existing Zooniverse uh, volunteer base. One of the reasons we created Zooniverse was that with Galaxy Zoo, as we had that initial success, we got a lot of press. Uh, and so people found the site through uh, that buzz. We realized pretty quickly that launching our 20th project or our 200th project or, or whatever isn't going to generate the same buzz. And so we have an audience of citizen science fans who are excited by new projects. There are people on the on the platform who want to do every project, for example, uh, which is which is quite fun. And I do think the sort of the the worlds and the data that that you're talking about are are fascinating. And there's inherent variety. So I think the filter is: are there a set of images that people would get something out of, of flicking through. Um, so we sometimes call this the poor sod problem. Like we'd like to do this research, but some poor sod would have to look at 10 million images of cells or, or whatever. Uh, and then the second thing is, can you explain in a sentence what the task is? Uh, and if those two things are true, people should come and build a, build a project and try it out. Gosh, <clears throat> just think about 
the number of pathology sections that need someone to eyeball it and right. work out if it's a, a, a if, if the patient's got cancer or infected or has an immune disease or something else the ability for that to be with greater certainty than having to go through human eyeballs each time for grading and looking and again but then also noticing differences between patients uh, which which could fundamentally change the way of science in the future yeah i'm, I'm going to move quickly because we've talked I, I, get involved if anyone's listening you know and if it's not yourself, your children, your parents, all yeah, sorts. Of every, yeah, yeah. We have people of all. I know five-year-olds have contributed to Zooniverse projects, and I know ninety-year-olds have. So that's the range. Um, and I think <laughs> we try and design the projects. Not, we don't always achieve this, but for the most part, from hitting the website to making a contribution should be less than two minutes, because I think the magic of these things as a participant is to know that you've done something real. It's a very different experience from coming to hear a talk or listening to a podcast or choosing to, to read a scientific article in, in the paper or whatever. Um, you know, I think, I think we promise you that you will be able to help even if you've only got a few minutes to spare. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's why last year during the pandemic, we saw an enormous spike in traffic because for those people who were lucky enough to have more time to, to spend on things. I know that wasn't everyone's case, but that ability to be part of a community that's helping was really inspiring. And so certainly the messages we got from people uh, showed how, how meaningful this sort of ability to, to help scientists was to them. And as a scientist, that reminds me why I'm doing any of this in the first place. It is a privilege to get to try and find out about the universe and, and to do that in the company of 2 million people is really exciting. It sounds like one of those board games, you know, age five to 95. How competitive, do I, 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 we need to move on, but how competitive do people get? Do people think, I want to, have you got a group that are almost competing against each other for the most classifications or inputs or? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, we, we did early on have a leaderboard and that worked for a few people and we, we got rid of it. But we've done some research into this because people often suggest that we gamify the project. You know, where are your badges and alerts that tell you that you've got to keep up your streak of 10 days or, or whatever. When you put that sort of competition in, what's interesting is it's very effective. Uh, it turns out uh, human beings are really incentivized by, by games and point scoring and competition. I think you kind of know that as my phone shouts at me to tell me that I haven't learned any German in the last three months. And, you know, I, I haven't been to, to, to play tennis in the, in, in the last week or so or, or whatever. So we're really incentivized by that, that gamification, but it changes how people think about the projects. They start worrying about whether they're winning instead of thinking about their participation. So we very deliberately try and discourage that sort of competition because I want people to realize that science is a collective endeavor. Um, we have a project called Planet Hunters. Uh, where people are literally discovering planets around other stars by looking at graphs for fun. Um, and in Planet Hunters, um, the odds of finding anything are pretty low. So we have contributors who've looked at 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 uh, of these graphs and not found a planet. But they're just as useful as the person who actually finds the thing because they're the same bit of information. This isn't anything. Stop looking at it. It's just as useful as you should take a look at this. And so it is a collective goal. And so we try and set, you know, this week, let's try and look at a million images or this week, let's try and finish this project. And, and that that seems to work quite well. It's brilliant. Now, you mentioned there before rushing off to play tennis, 
that. So I've got. To, <laughs> would you like to describe this picture that I've just? Uh, yes. Well, it's some very sweaty people. Um, six, five of my closest friends and I, all holding rainbow-coloured, misshapen tennis rackets. So this is a, at Hampton Court. So I play. Uh, I call it tennis, but it's real tennis, which is the old version. So it's played with a, a lopsided wooden racket. There you uh, go. There's there's the home court. So this is my favourite place in the world that's behind you now. So this is the Oxford University tennis court in. Uh, Merton Street, which dates back to the 16th century. Uh, it's the third oldest court in the world. So people have been doing this sport with more or less the same rules and the same equipment in the same place for, for more than 400 years. Um, and it's a brilliantly ridiculous game. There are You get a point if you hit the unicorn, for example. Uh, there are various uh, other bits of the court make bells ring if you hit them. Um, it's very tactical. So the, the best way to describe it is it's like playing a cross between uh, squash and chess in a pinball machine. <laughs> and you play it off the uh, off the side roof as well. So there's, there's yeah, you have to roof. serve. You serve up. There's a sloping roof. So so uh, it's difficult to describe, but it's supposed to be the shape of a medieval street. So on the left, you've got like a, a row of shops with with sloping roofs. You roll the ball up onto the, the roof. There are about 40 different serves that people have invented, all called things like there's the caterpillar and the giraffe and the railroad and the, the hunting dog, which are all different types of serve you can do. Uh, and then there's a, a net which sags in the middle and you can play forward and, and across the net. And then there are various other targets one can aim for. Um, I, I think what, what I love about it, apart from the fact that it's a ridiculous sport and, and I urge everyone to go and try it, it it's, it's great. It, it, it's it's physical, but it's also um, mentally difficult. And so when I'm on the tennis court, I can't think about anything else. So it's the one place I can be where I can really just concentrate and not think about work, not think about Zooniverse, not think about you know and anything else. It's just you have to be in the moment on the court. And it's a game that's about moving very fast and being very controlled. And the, the people in this picture, by the way, are the, the Oxford Unicorn team. So we went to Australia uh in 2019 to go and play a sorry 2020 start 2020 to go and play a tournament in melbourne and flying across the world to to play a ridiculous sport was was it was great fun so you say if you forget about work none of these are work colleagues uh one of those so the third one in is grant miller who's our project uh manager for zooniverse he and i um compete for this lovely trophy which is this is a a, a small very cheap trophy this is the astrophysics real tennis world championship so any astronomer who plays real tennis can challenge for this trophy. Uh, there are only two of us so far. Um, so, so that exists. And yeah, the rest of people I've met, through, met and played through, 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 through tennis and become great friends. With. So what other, what other sports are you into? Um, I, for playing it, tennis is my thing. Um, I, I, I am an enormous um, football fan. Um, I uh, it's my link back to where I live is that I'm a Torquay United fan. Um, so I, I grew up in South Devon and, and I still still follow the team. And then I picked up other teams. So I lived in Chicago for a while. I got very interested in uh, I, the Chicago Fire, who are a major league soccer team. Uh, and what actually the, the culture uh, in Chicago was amazing because these fans had <laughs> sort of had to create a culture of what it means to be a, a football or soccer fan in the states and they sort of nicked bits so they tailgate which is what you do before uh, normally an american american football game so people turn up and stand in the car park with their friends for three hours before the match 
Um, there were tailgates where we didn't bother to go in because the team were terrible and we were having fun outside. Uh, but then they had sort of, you know, there's a there's a Mexican tradition of having a band in the stands. So you find yourself on a football terrace with people playing the trumpet next to you and and and, and so on. And there's the there is the English thing of chanting and, and screaming and, and and so on, but also bits of Italian and Polish influence. And it it was it was really good fun to 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 be part of that and and scream and sing and and, and shout at a, a team that have been useless since I started supporting them ten years ago. They were apparently really good before I got involved, but but unfortunately, uh, I seem to pick only losing teams. You started with Torquay, which I, I'll be careful. Well, we had a good season this season. The playoffs, by the time this comes out, we may have been promoted. So maybe you want to edit in me saying that it's been a great season and Torquay <laughs> are brilliant. But I, I'm afraid it teaches pessimism being a Torquay fan. I mean, this is a team my my dad remembers being there. They hold the record for the fastest own goal in professional football. So they scored an own goal 12 seconds after kickoff. And I think that more or less sums up Torquay. My <laughs> My first match, I won't, I won't, I, I imagine the crossover audience with Talk United fans are low, but my first match involved the club being saved from certain doom by a police dog running on the pitch and biting one of our players. This is the kind of thing that happens <laughs> to this ridiculous team. Um, and, and it's been, it's been great to, 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 to follow along over the years. I, 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 cause this picture hasn't turned out. I, I didn't check the orientation of the picture first. So it's my oh, right, yeah. only mistake. <laughs> Yeah, I enjoyed this. This was this is me getting my vaccine. So this is um, this is a picture of me at the Kassam Stadium, which is Oxford United's home ground. And there was a past where Oxford and Torquay were in the same same league. So I, I wore my Torquay kit to uh, get my vaccine. I was desperately hoping that some Oxford fans would notice, but no one said anything. But I, I thought that was quite a nice link for it. Sort of brought my worlds together because it's a I, I have the Oxford the vaccine that was developed in here in Oxford at the stadium in my football kit. And that, that was all very nice. Um, and, you know, I tweeted this picture and, and, and got thanks and, and thanked the team who developed it. And I saw that several of them had seen it. I just, I keep thinking about that fact that, you know, a year and a half ago, they were in a lab trying to work out what on earth to do. And, and now here we are with, with people being vaccinated by something that was developed by a bunch of scientists up the road. It must be an amazing feeling. Uh, just, just, just uh, again, back to life science. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't say your problems were unimportant. I just said they were difficult. Uh, yeah. But and the responsibility that team had, you know, yeah. what a profound impact. Yeah. Yeah. Was... Well, let's hope so. I'm sort of sitting here waiting, waiting to see what the summer's going to be like. But yeah. but let's hope hope this is the beginning beginning no, no, of being able to travel again. Worry too much about that and see how it goes. <clears throat> uh, throughout your career. What's been the most challenging time? You, you're only forty. If you're insanely young, what what's, what have you found the most challenging time in your career? Well, there've been a few. Um, I think, I think the hardest problem which we keep coming up against in waves is to keep stuff going. Um, there, there's always an appetite for new ideas, um, and we have plenty of them, uh, and that's fun. But we've accidentally built a platform that um, hundreds of research teams use um, for their own research and everything from life sciences to ecology to, 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 to my own astronomy. And um, it's very hard to, to write a grant proposal that says, this is good, we want to do more of it. And so the, the thing that keeps me up at night is 
working out how to to keep that platform going um, and one answer is that we can keep being different so the new ideas help uh, and the platform has changed immensely over the 14 years we're not trying to do now what we were doing in 2007 or 2010 or even 2017 um, but um, I do feel there's there's this responsibility to keep keep the thing going and to keep the team together so we, I should have said that the Zooniverse is, is not my production at all. I mentioned Helen, but the other scientists, Grant, but there's a web development team split between my team here in Oxford and the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Um, and, and that's really tough, uh, I think. Um, on a personal note, I think the, 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 the hardest time is just after my PhD, I deliberately come to Oxford to learn stuff. I wanted to move away from some of the astrochemistry I've been doing, get involved in new problems. Um, and for the first six months I was here, I was pretty sunk. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, I didn't have the knowledge to, to attack the problems that I was supposed to be working on. Uh, I had a boss who was very friendly, but at 3 p.m. every day would knock on the door, come into the office and have an idea at me. Uh, and so I had a steadily growing list of ideas that I thought I was supposed to be working on. It took me a while to realize he did this to everyone. And that was his way of thinking. And the, the, the requirement was to have a conversation. But I, I felt really, really sunk, actually. Um, and I got nine months into a two-year postdoc uh, and was pretty sure that would be that. And then thought, well, I've got to do something. I don't care what it is. So I set up this nice side project called Galaxy Zoo because I could at least spend a couple of weeks building a nice website and, and, and getting people to classify galaxies. And at some point I should go back and do the work I was supposed to be employed on for that postdoc because I haven't really <laughs> recovered from that. But but yeah, I, I think anyone who tells you that they can be a researcher or, or have science as part of their lives and not have times where they don't know what they're doing, um, well, I'd like to meet them because that sounds rather wonderful and I've never met anyone who's ever gone through a career without getting really stuck. And that that was that was mine, which is good to hear. I think you know it's good for people to realise that it, it doesn't go to plan quite often. Yeah. And, no, and, that's, and and sometimes I think the thing I took from it was that sometimes the requirement is to do something, and not to worry too much about making a choice uh, or, or thinking about what would be best to do, but do some research, find something out, read something, think about something, and 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 yeah. I, I occasionally talk to to early career scientists who are trying to worry about if I write this paper now, then I can get this fellowship and then I'll do this. And then by the time I get to a faculty job, I'll be able to do. And it's good to think about those things. But in my experience, at least, the, the path is much more random uh, and, much, and you're going to be much more buffeted by, by random events, jobs that open up, data that becomes available things you find and so it's almost not worth worrying about too many steps ahead uh, and and really it's about like what what one can get done with what you've got in front of you um i really the, the only time in this whole interview i've actually felt old uh is when i'm giving advice like the only time i thought about my ages i i sound somewhere between in my head i'm sort of a 20 year old going Yes, well, let me tell you, kids, what it's like to be as old as 20. And, and yeah, I think I also coming across something like an 80-year-old crusty professor going, well, in my day, I just worked at it, and it all ended up all right. So it, it is it, being being involved in science where we don't know the answers is really tough. It's really hard. And um, it, I, I think it's okay uh, to say that sometimes. 
It's certainly not a stress-free environment. That that's for sure. So I, our time has flown, and I've still got a few more. I've got some quick-fire questions. Okay, but, let's try and do them as quick-fire, shall we? We can we can do this. Okay. What's your favourite item that you own? Um, I'm not really a a a, a person who who um cares about things really. Um, I will go for this crochet. This is a crochet lobster, which has a backstory that I'm not going to tell you. But this this lobster is excellent. Okay. What's your pet hate? Habits or otherwise? Um, gosh, these are difficult. I don't. Why are these difficult? I guess I should need. I, celebrities <laughs> seem to have these. Pat, I need. I need a list. Um, well, you you present the sky at night. You should have these. Come on. No, pet pet hate. Um, people who assume that they're being boring. I hate the, you won't be interested in this, right? Everyone can be interested in everything. We should start from the assumption that everyone is interested. You, you, said, um, you, might, you said you might not be very interesting in this. Yeah, well, I do it myself. I'm not just saying it's, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's, it, it's not a habit I've, I, I've developed, but I think it's a natural thing, isn't it? It's like to assume that you're boring people, but my experience, my long experience, people tell you if, if you're boring them. So I think we should all be, just, just assume that our audience is interested. Uh, I think it goes back to the science communication stuff. I think too often we're filtering, you know, what we're saying to an audience because we, we're trying to guess what they're interested in. Actually, people are interested in people. And, you know, if you're being excited about your science, I want to hear about it, even if I don't follow the details and even if um, I've never thought about cell biology or, or whatever, or protein structure before. I'll make these even quicker answers then. Night owl or uh, night owl or early bird? Uh, both, but not the afternoon. Okay, fair enough. What's your favourite food? Uh, Szechuan. What do you hate food-wise? Uh, weirdly, milk in coffee. Milk in coffee. Yeah, I drink black coffee, but any coffee-flavoured things or anything that's messed with. So, yeah. Favourite drink? I'm dreaming of a decent pint of bitter in a pub because it's been a there haven't been enough of those. So let's go with that. Okay. Favorite movie? Contact. What movie genre do you hate? Horror. Scary. Okay. Fact or fiction? Reading. Uh, fact in the morning, fictions in the evening. Trashiest TV program that you secretly like. I'm not a huge TV person. I watched all of Grey's Anatomy for some reason. Okay. Favourite item of clothing? I've got one really good shirt that I'm not allowed to wear on camera because it's too patterned. It's, a, it's like a swirly, paisley thing. Oh, that takes me back. I'm digressing that. Okay. Uh, music genre. What's your favourite music genre? Uh, depends on the day of the week and the weather, but the blues. Okay. And you sent me finally some pictures, which hey, rather psychedelic with keyboards and... Yeah, mixers. so this is, the, this is the, the home office of my friend Steve Pretty. So Steve is an amazing jazz musician. He's the lead of a band called the Hackney Colliery Band, which you should go and listen to. They are brilliant. Um, if you want to hear a, a modern jazz medley of 
uh, Nirvana's greatest hits, for example, they're your people, uh, but they also do other things. So, but Steve and I met doing doing various things, and we we've been collaborating on um, shows where we I explain astronomy to a jazz audience, and he explains jazz to an astronomy audience, possibly satisfying nobody. Uh, but they're they're good. I I have a very in the early days when we were the show's now pretty good. But when we started, the, sh the show starts with Steve walking into the theater, blowing on a conch uh, and through the audience. And then I come in and read some of Stapledon, actually, the, the Olaf Stapledon uh, piece that I was talking about earlier. Uh, but yeah, the first time we did that, Steve walked in, blew his conch and this amateur astronomer who'd come to hear about astronomy went, oh, no right over the top of it, which is great. Anyway, um, the thing I said to you, I hope you can put a link somewhere, is that we discovered a system of planets which are in resonance. So K2138 is the system, has five planets. Uh, the innermost one, for every three times that goes around, the next one goes around twice. Uh, for every three times that goes around the star, the next one goes around twice and so on. And so you can sonify this. Steve took the sonification and produced this slightly psychedelic, but mostly mellow, beautiful, improvised, uh, jazz uh, piece uh, playing with the solar system, which I, I just think is wonderful. And it's a really nice example of where astronomy can take you. The, the great joy I have is, the, is working with everyone from uh, your friends at the Crick to, to people like Steve to, to try and find out about the universe and talk about. I'm going to have to ask Bite Size Blow if they can actually put just a little end credits, the song in the background, or maybe uh, go for it. stevefretty.com. Uh, so website is there for I think it's www.stevepretty.com. Stevepretty.com. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's also the house band. That, he's running the house band at the Globes production of Midsummer Night's Dream this summer. If you want to go and see some theatre and feel safe going to an outside place. You can actually listen to your music. Literally, you're the sound of space. <laughs> it's cool. Chris, you've been great to talk to today. Thank you. Very, we, we, yeah, I said it'd be about an hour. I think we just, I think we've gone a bit over, but do you know what? This has been terrific. Far from boring. <laughs> we, which well, I hope so. It, does, it feels incredibly self-indulgent to sit and, and talk about yourself for an hour. So thank you for that. That's but been, had, well, been think about how many people, not many people can say they've inspired 2.3 million armchair scientists, and not just armchair scientists, serious scientists from five to 95 to get involved to help from astrophysicists to biologists to ecologists right across the board. Fundamentally, inspiring absolutely brilliant so anyway chris thank you very much for today and taking your time to join me and everyone else who's listened please do watch some of the other podcasts on the microscopists and uh yeah do you know what this has been brilliant chris thank you very much my pleasure talk to you soon thank you for listening to the microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by zeiss microscopy to view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.